All right, grab your Bibles and open up to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, we'll look at 1 through 28 as we see God renew his covenant. Sometimes I look at the news on my phone, and uh, one of the things, for some reason, that keeps showing me is Johnny Depp's in court for something or other. I think that's probably what made me think of this illustration that I'm going to start with about Johnny Depp in court. Uh, so I thought, man, that's kind of a throwback reference, but I think that's where it's coming from. Uh, several years ago, there was this movie about the famous Colombian drug runner and cartel leader Pablo Escobar and how the law eventually caught up with him, how it didn't work out well for him. Uh, but there's a scene in this movie where a guy who was caught running drugs across the border for Pablo Escobar, uh, he's in court, and in his, he makes this grand speech in his own defense, uh, in which he describes his drug trafficking as crossing an imaginary line with a bunch of plants. To which the judge responds, unfortunately for you, the line you crossed was real, and the plants you brought with you were illegal. So your bail is $20,000. <laughs> now, the movie was trying to make this criminal look cool. It was this kind of big speech, and he's quoting Bob Dylan, and, and he's saying, you know, some imaginary line with a bunch of plants, and he's trying to make him look cool, and, and the judge looked kind of stuffy and out of touch. Um, but really, what this character was doing was expressing his deep ignorance of the, of the fundamental realities of the world. He was dismissing moral and political realities as imaginary and ultimately insignificant. Plants across an imaginary line. But the judge, who was supposedly being portrayed as kind of a stuffy and out-of-touch person, was actually understanding the world really well. Moral and legal realities, while invisible, are profoundly real. They're not merely man-made constructs any more than gravity is a man-made construct or logic or reason. Morality and sovereignty, ownership and governance are invisible realities that are built into this world by God and which the wise learn to understand and appreciate. And just because you can't see them doesn't make them any less real. Now, in a similar way, I once had a friend who was thinking of moving in with his girlfriend. He was a new believer, and I was explaining to him why it would be disobedient to God to go ahead with his plans, and I was trying to help him figure out another arrangement and another way to go about this, but he was really set on his plan. And his response to me was that they were in love, and so they were basically married. After all, isn't love what's most important? I told him that if they were basically married, they might as well go ahead and get actually married and then move in together. And he said to me, I don't need some piece of paper from the church or the government to tell me that I'm married. I don't need some piece of paper. I have love in my heart. And you, my stuffy, out-of-touch friend, just don't get it. I have love 
You want me to sign a document. You don't get it. It's the same type of idea, isn't it? Dismissing moral and here covenantal realities as insignificant, man-made traditions that have outlived their usefulness, thinking that feelings of love for each other were really the true and the most significant reality in their situation. We have love. What good are your formal ceremonies? After all, isn't Jesus really about love? Isn't love the real thing and marriage ultimately insignificant? Wasn't I being all legalistic, talking about covenants and ceremonies, commands and laws, while he was talking about love? No. Because moral and covenantal realities are true. They're real. They're built by God into the structure of reality on purpose. And they're gifts to us of immense value and importance and delight. And sadly, my friend didn't listen to biblical advice, didn't get married, moved in with his girlfriend, shortly became pregnant, and within the year, they were separated. And their sweet little daughter pays the price to this debt of that wrong thinking, of that thinking, I have feelings of love in my heart, who needs your contracts and covenants? But she pays the price to this day, as do both of them. And in ripples, so does their whole community around them. But in contrast to these ways of thinking, when God expresses his steadfast love, the real love of God that we heard about last week from early on in Exodus 34, when God expresses his steadfast love, the love that cannot be comprehended, he delights to formalize that love in covenant, ceremony, with rituals, promises, commands, and public records. And we reap the rewards of that. And so does he. And in ripples, so does the whole community around him. If you read wide enough, you'll almost always find some C.S. Lewis quote that just aptly illustrates a point so I've got one for you today. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, the idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves, while they remain really in love, know this better than those who talk about love. As Chesterton pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. The Christian law is not forcing upon the passions of love something which is foreign to that passion's own nature. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion of itself impels them to do. And of course, the promise made when I am in love and because I'm in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits me to being true even if I cease to be in love. That's the end of the Lewis quote. So the point I'm trying to make here 
is that today's ideas, influenced by Gnosticism and hippie ideas, that invisible love and the secret place of the heart of an individual is all you need, is the deepest reality, those are bad ideas. And in our scripture today, we're going to see again that God loves covenant and ceremony as the way to express his love. And covenants have a specific structure when they're formalized or when they're renewed, as we'll see today. In Exodus 34, 1 to 28, because of God's steadfast love, because of his mercy, because of his grace, God will renew covenant with Israel. Because he is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he makes and keeps covenant with his people. And so Exodus 34 records this significant event, the renewal of the covenant with ceremony, formality, and documentation. Because love delights to be made objective and expressed outwardly in these ways, written on the public psyche, embedded in the memory, officially recorded and registered, celebrated, and formalized. That cuts against the individualist, rebellious, novel, Gnostic grain today. But covenant is what is here to stay. And God's people, we as God's people, should know how to embrace and enjoy and love it. So let's look at Exodus 34, 1 to 28 this morning. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of the cow and the sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Amen? Amen. So God renews covenant. We'll just briefly review verses 1 to 9, which I've already preached on twice now, because there's so much there. We're just going to briefly review that so we get the context for the rest of chapter 34. Because in verses 1 to 9, God graciously prepares to renew the covenant. He's entered into covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai already. We've already seen this. Remember the sacrifices and the readings of his word and the splattering of the blood on the book and on the people, on the altar, and the reading of God's word in the middle and all the ceremony which God had used to formalize his relationship with his people Israel. And he'd given to Moses the stone tablets as a kind of public record of the covenant, which were to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant and the holiest place in the tabernacle. But Israel had immediately rebelled and broken God's first two commandments, showing themselves to be unfaithful covenant breakers. And at the sight of Israel's rebellion against God's commands, Moses had thrown the tablets down and broken them, God's anger had burned hot against them. But in his mercy, he had decided to restore the relationship, showing steadfast love and faithfulness to Israel, even though they had not shown it to him. So he calls Moses to cut new tablets here in the first nine verses of 34. Cut new tablets, bring them back up the mountain. I'll meet with you again, and I'll write on the tablets myself, God says to Moses. This is common in God's dealings. He will make covenants with his people and then he will renew them. He will confirm them. Many of us were at such a covenant renewal ceremony just yesterday. Jason and Hannah had entered into the covenant of marriage several weeks ago in California with family and community there. 
But they wanted to renew those covenant promises again here among this community. And let us respond, we do agree we will uphold them. We will do everything in our strength to uphold them in the promises that they make. (coughs) And yesterday they renewed those promises as they spoke them to each other again in another ceremony for our sake. By God's grace, it wasn't because they had broken it, needed repair, right? just for other witnesses, because covenants are not secret, invisible realities. They're not individual, private realities. Covenants are public realities. They affect and actually call for certain responses from the community, from all of us. And so it's here in this context of renewing covenant where God reveals himself as the gracious and merciful God who keeps steadfast love and faithfulness. All those wonderful realities we meditated on last week happen here in the context of a covenant renewal ceremony. The terms for steadfast love and faithfulness, which God revealed as part of his name and his very character, in Hebrew, hesed and emet, are regularly used together across scripture to describe God's covenant keeping. God enters into relationships formed by promises and he always keeps those promises. It's faithful always. His love is steadfast and unwavering. God promises to act in certain ways towards his people, and he is unswervingly faithful and loyal to his promises. And we've further noticed here that Moses asks God for pure mercy for a sinful people. Remember, God had said, I will not go in your midst because you are a stiff necked people. And remember that Moses' response was to say, oh God, please go in our midst, for we are stiff-necked people. God's raw, undeserved mercy is all we have to hope in. He says, I won't go in your midst because you are sinners. And we say, please save us because we are sinners. It's all you have to offer to God. If you have the sense, if you feel like you have to get it all worked up, get it all cleaned up and all together before you can come to God, you don't understand the salvation of God. Jesus died for sinners. You just bring to him your sin, humbly and in confession and in faith, and God will forgive you and restore you and heal you. So Moses asks, God, please go in our midst For we are a stiff-necked people. And let's see God's response in verse 10. God vows. God's response to that request. Father, please have mercy on us. God vows formally and publicly to do Israel more good than the earth has ever seen. That's God's response. Oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. This is his answer. Do you love covenants? If you don't, you should learn to. And what's God vowing to do? A covenant is an oath-bound relationship. So what's God vowing to do? What's he promising to do? I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. That's a bold claim coming on the heels of the Exodus, isn't it? The deliverance of over a million people enslaved to the world's greatest political power, led out by one man, 
who walked into the court of the Pharaoh and said, let my people go, says the Lord. While Pharaoh resisted with all the strength he had to not let them go, and yet nevertheless, by the power of God, out they go, going free. And not only that, but as they go out, they come to a sea, they're trapped, the armies of Egypt are bearing down on them, and God moves an entire sea out of the way so that they can walk safely through, and then as their enemies pass, he smashes it down on them so their corpses are washed up on the beach. And then they get thirsty, and so God brings water out of a rock, and they get hungry, so he sends bread down from heaven. And then he comes down in his own glory and appears to them on the mountain, which was shaking with his presence. And on the heels of that, he says, I'm about to do marvels such as have not been created in the earth or seen by any nation. What a God. He says, you think that was big? Wait till you see what I have coming. He will do such an awesome thing for Israel that all the nations around them will see the awesome work of Yahweh. How's that? for a response to Israel's idolatry. They're up there getting the commands. They're down there making a golden calf and worshiping an idol and ascribing the mighty works of Yahweh to it. What's God going to do in response to this? He's going to make a covenant with them and he's going to show them even greater works. What a God Yahweh is. There's no king like him. There's no God like your God, Christian. Isn't he great? Don't you love him? Don't you trust him? So that's what God's going to do. God calls Moses, come up, get ready for this covenant renewal. Here's what I'm going to do. And like in any covenant, you have the people come together and the one says, here's what I'm going to do. And then here's what you're going to do. Because a covenant has requirements for both parties. Covenants formalize relationships. And relationships are two-way streets. If you're in a relationship with someone and you always only expect them to do things for you, but you never expect or do anything for them, that relationship will eventually wear down and break. And since this covenant is with God, the king, the father, he explains to his people what he expects them to do. Right? So because this is from God, he teaches us. Here's what I'm going to do, and then here's what you're going to do. That's nice. The first commandment he gives them is based on another amazing thing he's going to do for them. So he can hardly even start explaining, now here's what I want you to do in response to me. Here's how this relationship is going to work. Here's how I want you to respond. He can barely get that out of his mouth before he starts saying, more stuff that he's doing for them. Because this is the kind of God he is. It's in verses 11 to 16. He says, look, I'm going to drive out all the peoples before you. I'm giving you a wonderful land on the Mediterranean Sea. I'm going to give it to you for free. It's going to have houses you didn't build, crops you didn't plant. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. That land, I'm going to drive out all the people before you. It's just yours. Where's the command? This, like, here's what you're supposed to do. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you. Where's the command? Well, he's saying, when I do that, when I drive all these people out and give you this wonderful land as a gift of my grace, 
Don't make a covenant with those people that I'm going to drive out. Lest it become a snare in your midst. That's what he says in verse 12. When I give you everything, all right, here's my end. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to do more than the world has ever seen. And here's what I want you to do. When I give it to you, don't lay a snare for your own feet. That's your job. God's so restrictive. He's always hindering us with these laws and rules of his. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. How are they supposed to avoid this? How do they avoid entering into covenant with the people that God's driving out? Tear down their altars. Break their pillars. Cut down their asherim. What's an asherim? Asherim are either like a tree or a grove of trees that's set apart for worshiping the goddess Asherah. Or poles, kind of like totem poles almost, that are set up in honor of the goddess Asherah, often associated with incense, altars, high places, and images. These were places of worship around a tree or a grove of trees or a pole that was set up. Those are Asherim. So cut those down. Why? Because they're not supposed to worship any other gods. For the Lord is a jealous God. Verse 14. The Lord is a jealous God. God whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He's not just kind of jealous. His name is jealous. Now we usually think of like overly suspicious, over the top, jealousy. That's not a good thing. Why would God say his name is jealous? But proportionate jealousy in line with reality as the flip side of love, it's an attribute of God. So much so that it says his name is jealous. A husband who's willing to share his wife with another man is a scumbag. We have names for that. (laughs) He ought to be jealous over her. A husband ought to be jealous over his wife, not wanting to share her with another. It's an exclusive relationship. And if he's not jealous over his wife, something is deeply wrong with him. He ought to want her romantic love exclusively for himself as he gives his exclusively to her. There should be a jealousy that guards their relationship. And that's how God is with his people. God will not permit his people to worship other gods. The relationship is designed to be exclusive. It's part of its glory. It's part of its beauty. And if Israel enters into a covenant with the people of Canaan, it will lead them to whore after the false gods. If Israel binds herself to the pagan peoples in formal relationships, if she makes covenants with the people, it will lead them astray. If you bind yourself to an idolater, you will eventually find yourself worshiping the idol. That's what God says. The pagans will sacrifice to their pagan gods and they will invite Israel and Israel will then eat of those sacrifices with them. If Israel marries their children to the pagans, then the children will will whore after the pagan gods of their spouses. 
Because, of course, idolatry is highest whoredom. That's what it is. Remember that Paul says these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did and not be idolaters as some of them were. And so it is for us, just like God's calling Israel, don't go and make covenants with the pagan people or else you're going to end up worshiping their idols, their false gods. So it is with us. God tells us as Christians, these things are written down for our instruction so that we wouldn't get lured into idolatry in the same ways. God calls us not to make covenants with unbelievers. He says, don't be unequally yoked together with those who don't know God. Young people, single people, as you look for someone to marry, look within the faith. Don't enter into covenant with unbelievers. They will lead your heart astray. They will lead you to worship false gods. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Remember that while we love our enemies, we do good to all men. Also, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? If you hang up over that, no, I'm just reading to you from the book of James. So rather than entering into covenant with idolaters or wishing to be a friend of the world, or instead, we're supposed to tear down their idols, smash their pillars. That's what Israel is being called to do. Israel was sent into Canaan to receive it by faith. In a similar way, we are sent into the nations to receive them for Christ by faith. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. We cannot make peace with the world's idols. We cannot play nice with the world's idols. We are to tear them down, break them down, cut them down. Well, that seems a little Old Testament-y, kind of mean. We're in the New Covenant. We're just supposed to be nice. Surely we're not supposed to tear anything down. Well, what does Paul say? We have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. He goes on to say, first, yourself, uh, ready to punish every disobedience once your obedience is complete. So we usually use that, take every thought captive for our own thoughts. That's good. That's where he tells you to start. When your obedience is complete, then you're ready to punish every disobedience. So it's not just your thoughts you're supposed to take captive. It's all the thoughts, right? Destroy arguments. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Isn't that our mission? Teach, baptize, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that he's commanded. Well, he's with us always, even to the end of the age. It reminds me of the story of Boniface, right? You know the story of Boniface, the 7th century 
English monk. He was sent by the church to Germany. And while lots of the German people were accepting Christ and renouncing their pagan worship, also lots of the German people were saying, this Jesus sounds nice, this sounds good. We'll kind of weave him into our idol worship. And we'll, we'll add him in. We can worship Jesus and we can still go to our groves of trees. Just like the Asherim, we'll go to the groves, the high places, the groves of trees, and we will continue to worship our false gods, our pagan gods. And if Jesus can help too, we'll throw his name in. Couldn't hurt. That's not conversion. So Boniface, the missionary, went to the biggest tree in the midst of their grove, their sacred grove. He went to the biggest tree that was called the Oak of Jupiter. And while the pagans cursed him and God, he chopped the tree down. And they're saying, our gods are going to strike you down for this. And he's just... <laughs> the tree falls. Boniface looks around. He's still standing. And so the story goes that he cut the tree up and they built a church in its place for the worship of Yahweh. And then when the pagans saw that nothing bad actually happened to him, then they renounced their pagan worship and committed themselves fully to God. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful thing. Maybe not what some would call winsome, but it's biblical and it's good. And look how it won the pagans to the worship of Christ. Coming against our culture's idols won't necessarily make you popular. It will make you mad. Several of you went out and confronted some idols yesterday at the park. But making friends with our culture will lead you to being swayed towards eating their sacrifices, worshiping their gods. And that will make God mad. So who do you fear? The world or God? If you go with God, the world won't like you. But if you try to seek to be friends with the world, that's enmity with God. That's pitting God against you. So whose favor do you want? The world's or God's? Amen. We can't have them both. We can't have them both. Furthermore, Israel was to avoid making themselves any more gods of cast metal. They've done this. It didn't go well. We saw where it led. So he recommended, verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Remember, we're in this covenant relationship. God has explained what he's going to do for them. Now, here's what I expect of you. Don't make covenants with those people. Cut down their idols. Don't make any more idols yourselves. Don't even, and then don't pretend that you just threw the gold in and out it came. They were to keep the feasts. Verse 18 talks about the feast of unleavened bread before God to remember his great exodus, all those wonderful works we just described when they came out from Egypt. They were to keep this annual feast of unleavened bread to remember what God had done in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Cut off the leaven, start new lumps, sourdough starter lumps so that they would grow and it would be a clean break. Get rid of those. You start with something fresh. It's a sign of being delivered and brought out. Verse 19 and 20, they're to recognize that all the firstborn belong to God by redeeming or offering them and to bring their gifts to God. We've been over these things in great detail in the last months. All the firstborn belong to God. Remember how he spared them in the Passover. 
All the firstborn were being killed. They all belong to God. Offer them animals. And if it's an animal that, or a child, a son, that you don't want to offer to God, that would be bad. God wouldn't ask you to put your own son on the altar for him. You offer an animal in its place, or you redeem it. Bring gifts to God. Verse 21, to keep the Sabbath. Work six days, rest on the seventh. But it's harvest time. We need to work all seven days. No. Planting in and harvest, you rest. Keep the Sabbath. They're to keep the three annual festivals to the Lord in verses 22 and 23. Again, we've been over these in, in great detail. They were to do this because he was going to cast out the nations before them and enlarge their borders. And in the meantime, he was going to keep anyone from coveting their land while they were all gone keeping festival. Isn't that wonderful? The practical mind says, you can't go keeping festival so much. We can't rest and go on holy day. What will happen to our work and to our land? People are going to covet it. They're going to come in. We're all down in Jerusalem having a feast. What's going to happen to our land? They're going to take it over. This says God will keep people from coveting it. God will take care of it. That's part of the point of Sabbath, isn't it? Rest and festival. It's the Lord who's keeping this all going. He wants you to work hard. He's entrusted you to work hard and to take dominion and to do good work. But he doesn't want you to forget in that and start to think, I'm doing all of this. We keep the wheels turning. No, it's God who keeps the wheels turning. And he reminds us of that. Verse 25 and 26 show they were to offer sacrifices as God had commanded. And as we saw outlined in detail in God's instruction to Moses, keep all the sacrifices. Offer the sacrifices to God as he's instructed. That's it. That's Israel's part of the covenant. That's how God instructed them to be faithful to him. This is a summary, of course, of the law that we've spent a long time going through, the book of the covenant. Worship God, destroy idols, work and rest, feast before God, and offer him sacrifices. That's my summary of all the stuff we just looked at. Worship God, destroy idols, work and rest, feast before God, and offer him sacrifices. That brings us to the last couple verses in 27 and 28. Something really important. Covenant documents. That piece of paper, you know, that my friend didn't need because he had love. God loves covenant documents. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. I want you to write it down. Formalize it. Put it in a document. Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Another summary of the law. Another summary of the covenant. Because this is a covenant, God provides covenant documents. He has Moses write down these instructions because his covenant is in accordance with these words. Write it down. Keep it. Remember it. Reference it. This is important. There are certain things that are required of you. Remember them. Write them down. And God wrote down the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. The Ten Words are a kind of summary of the law. A summary of what God requires from Israel. They're covenant documents. They were to be kept safe. This relationship between God and His people, this relationship of steadfast love, faithfulness, of mercy and grace was not loose and undefined, was it? 
It was not up to each individual. It was not based on their feelings. It was based on the word of God expressed in the covenant. It was clear, binding, spelled out, public, and based on God's word. What a blessing that is. We should not sweep that aside as though that's not really that important. And as a result of it being these things, it's sure. It's knowable. It's objective, and it's clear. Because while Israel's hearts will move and shift and sway and bend, the terms of the covenant will not. So your relationship with God is not grounded on the shifting sands of emotion or situation, but on his steadfast love, expressed in covenant, detailed clearly by his words, received by faith. Isn't that beautiful? Can't you just really rest knowing that? Aren't you glad your relationship with God does not rise and fall with your fickle emotions? With your situation? It's constantly changing. It's nailed down. Memories may fade. Passions may rise. Friendships may develop. Challenges may come. The relationship with God will hold fast because it doesn't rise and fall with these things. As long as Israel worships God, destroys idols, works and rests, feasts before God, and offers him sacrifices, as long as they keep his commandments, all will be well, and they will be blessed. And there's the catch. We've said that our relationship with God is not based merely on private, inward individualistic emotions but on his covenant promises that don't move. That's surely not to say that his covenant doesn't go inward. It's not to say that his covenant isn't with each individual. It's not to say that it doesn't touch and deal with our emotions and shape them, and especially our deeper affections. It certainly does all of those things. Thanks be to God that we are not a part of the old covenant. Because a covenant requires faithfulness from both parties. And there's the hitch. Israel could not be obedient. They would not be obedient. But we are in a new covenant. And in this new covenant, which we'll examine more fully next Sunday in the verses that come, this new covenant does so much more than that old covenant ever could. That old covenant could be broken by disobedience. And that's a problem. Part of the glory of this new covenant is that it addresses the problem that's in our hearts. It addresses the problem of our lack of obedience. Because there's no problem with God. Under the old covenant, it would work fine for God. He's immovable. He's faithful. His love is steadfast. He's able to keep up his end of the bargain. God's covenant is good. But God can find no faithful covenant partner on earth. Not even one. He could not find one person 
who would destroy idols, offer the sacrifices and feast before him, worship God. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But God has brought about a new covenant in Christ Jesus. Notice that now God doesn't do away with covenants altogether. I say, I used to deal with covenants, but those didn't work because people couldn't obey. And so now we just deal with feelings of love. No. Rather, he makes a better covenant. He doesn't shed covenants and say, they're the problem. He says, I'm going to make a new and better covenant with you. It will have its own public signs and sacraments, its own promises and obligations. And in this new covenant, he has supplied what was lacking. He has supplied a covenant head, a man, a man who is faithful to uphold man's end of the covenant. He has supplied the perfectly obedient one, a faithful covenant partner on our end. He has supplied the obedient son, the one who perfectly honored and obeyed and trusted God as our representative and whose obedience is accounted to us by faith in him so that we can maintain covenant relationship with God in him. So that we can have all the blessings of the covenant because Christ is faithful on our behalf. And as always, on God's behalf, he remains faithful. And in him, in Christ Jesus, God has now made a way for us to be born again. For us to be given new hearts. For us to be indwelt by his Holy Spirit so that we can be made into the type of people who increasingly keep covenant who have his law written not just on stone tablets that can be thrown down and broken, but written on our very hearts so that we can be transformed progressively into the image of God as we look to Christ as the faithful covenant keeper so the relationship will never be broken. And in that place of safety, God is renewing us after the image of our creator, creating faithful hearts in us so that we can learn day by day more and more to become faithful partners in the covenant to God. What a wonderful plan that in Christ we can become those who respond to God with steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's conclude with a reading from Hebrews 7 about this new covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. It would have all worked out. Israel would have kept their end Everything would have been fine. God and his people and happy relationship forever. His blessings. But it wasn't faultless. The problem was in us. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, not with the covenant, but with Israel. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. This is what he has said, and this is what you have received. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Our relationship with God does not rise and fall with our feelings. It's not simply about your private, secret feelings of love for God in your heart, though those are surely involved. Your relationship with God is founded on his covenant. And all of your hope and your obedience are found fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you, God is your God, and we are his people in Christ Jesus. And we are being renewed day by day into faithful, steadfast lovers of God by his mercy. Isn't it wonderful? Rest in his covenant. Let's go to heaven.